Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today, of course, is no exception. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, we wrote a blog on LPA. If any of you saw that blog, you'll see that it was, we were just touching on it, and yet it was a pretty extraordinary drill down. And I just realized you know, many more questions exist in the world of lipidology, and it was high time that I brought an expert on to the podcast to move through what we want to look at as clinicians and how we want to think about it and what kind of interventions we can do, et cetera. So that brings me to my guest today. I'm just really excited to, um, to be speaking with him. And I'm just so glad that our paths crossed. He'll probably be joining me more than one time. And, and actually, send me your questions since this is likely the case. So I'm speaking with um, Dr. Thomas Dayspring today. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the National Lipid Association. Uh, he's an internal medicine doc. He has been practicing medicine for um, over 35 years. So he is an in-the-trenches clinician, but he's also a clinical lipidologist. He's been chief um, academic advisor for two cardiovascular labs. He's lectured all over the world on clinical lipidology. He's got book chapters. He's got peer-reviewed journal articles. He's the associate edit editor of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. He's just a really smart guy. He was the recipient of the 2011 National Lipid Association President's Award for Services to Clinical Lipidology. He knows what he's talking about in the science, and really, most importantly for all of us, he has been in the clinical uh, trenches. He's been applying all of the scientific knowledge and addressing these things with patients for decades. Tom, welcome to New Frontiers. Well, it's a pleasure to be here speaking, Karen. I know you have an enlightened audience that uh, it should be very fun, the topics we're about to get into. Yeah. And so, you know, I was thinking, so, you know, originally LPA brought me to you, but as you and I have been dialoguing, um, I, you know, we just really kind of ahad on the best use of our time, at least for this first conversation, is you as a scientist, as a lipidologist and a clinician, you know, to move through the lab panels that you're thinking about and why. So we're going to break it up today into a primary, secondary, and tertiary laboratory analysis. Um, and let's just jump right in with what kind of a primary cardio evaluation are you is essential, in your opinion? All right. Well, as everybody knows, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality is high on the list to evaluate in a human being and make sure if issues are discovered, you're going to do whatever you have to do using lifestyle and for the very high-risk people, pharmacotherapy. Uh, so what is the workup? And of course, me being who I am, we're going to concentrate on the lipid lipoprotein workup. Although cardiovascular risk requires a complete personal history, a family history, a good physical examination, lifestyle evaluation, et cetera, et cetera. 
but you're going to have to order some biomarkers to further ascertain and better qualify what degree of cardiovascular risk might somebody have. And depending on what you, at the end of the day, come to, you're going to base the aggressiveness on your treatment on, geez, what risk category are you in? Low risk, moderate risk, high, very high risk. So of course, everybody's going to start with some standard blood tests, a CBC, and you'll deal with whatever shows there. You're going to do a urinalysis, and to me, the most important thing in the lipid world to look at for that is, is there any protein in the urine? That's a marker of endothelial dysfunction. So you're going to just do a basic UA? Are you going to look at microalbumin or anything like that on this yeah, initial one? Yes, yeah, so most uh, basic dipstick is going to have a, a microalbumin on it. I don't think you have to quantify it beyond that. Okay. Uh, and I, I mean, there'll be other things in there. It'll be a value, but uh, as a lipid guy, it's primarily what I'm zeroing in on, uh, uh, you, you know, is the protein in the urine. Because that tells me you have glomerular endothelial dysfunction. And if you have it there, you have it elsewhere. And it's a big risk factor. It's a prediabetes risk factor, metabolic syndrome risk factor, blah, blah, blah. All right, and of course, everybody's gonna do a complete metabolic profile. So you're gonna get a glucose, you're gonna get at least a creatinine. And more important in looking at the creatinine, virtually all labs report estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, and that's the critical metric. It will be adjusted if you're an African-American as uh, compared to uh, Caucasian. But, and here's a big problem with that, because again, if you start slipping with EGFR, it's a major cardiovascular risk factor, and all labs sort of report it's under 60 or it's above 60. Try and get your labs to give you an exact EGFR, because many don't recognize this. If your EGFR is between 60 and 90, which many labs will say, hey, that's normal, that's stage one kidney disease, according to the kidney societies. And to me, that's, aha, I got a yep. kidney issue here. That's the grand opportune time to recognize I need a more serious renal workup in this patient. I don't want to wait till you've lost a third or a half of your kidney function and your EGFR is 60 or below. Yeah, so right, right, right. Pay to that EGFR number. It's a major kick in the rear end that you better look seriously at this patient. And we need for, to be working, and we need to be working with a lab that's going to quantify regardless. Yes, they, you know, right now, many, too many just say above 60, below 60, and mm -hmm. above 60, they consider okay. I would, you know, I could settle on 90 for that if they wanted to do that, but I think you got to know if it's between 60 and 90. Because before you get to 60, you're going to be 70. And I would know that before you, you lose too much of your kidney function. Absolutely. Absolutely. So listen, 30 seconds. <laughs> what is the, 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 the secondary workup for kidney disease you're going to be doing? Well, then, personally, I would rather see a cystatin level. It's a much better uh, blood biomarker of renal function because it's not influenced by body mass and race the way creatinine is. But yeah. that's the second. And if that is also high, then I think you, you would get an ultrasound to the kidney to see what you're dealing with. If you haven't checked the urinary protein or uh, other abnormalities in, in uh, the, the urinalysis, you would do that. And that's where you start. And between those, I think you'd have a good handle that I've got a problem here. Well, any single biomarker that's abnormal, it's never bad to, oh, let me repeat it in two yes. or three weeks to make sure it's not a fluke before yep. you do the million-dollar workup. So I think that's the approach to that and start you know, going down and then you can get a handle. Of course, you're going to look closely at blood pressure in anybody who might have impaired. You're going to look closely for insulin resistance biomarkers. You're going to question the family history. You know, just, oh my God, it's, it's, everybody in his family's got polycystic kidney disease, something crazy like that. Yep. So yeah, you look at it. So let's uh, keep going on our primary cardio. All right, so the last thing I think you got to really zero in on in the comprehensive metabolic profile, not that everything oh, in yeah. there might not have importance, but I think it's crucial to get an upfront idea, what, is there any evidence of hepatic inflammation going on? And you know what I'm looking at, NASH or fatty liver. Uh, yep. Of course, there's a million causes of AST, ALTs going up, but the most prevalent cause is insulin resistant early fatty liver. And if your AST and ALT, especially the ALT, is elevated, I have to look further to decide, my God, do you have fatty liver? Because not only is fatty liver now the leading cause of 
uh, cirrhosis, end-stage liver disease, and liver uh, transplantation, it's so tied in with diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance, and there are ways we can address that nutritionally and, and even pharmacologically if we have to, to preserve your liver. Livers do not last forever. Too many doctors see an ALT of 40, 50, ah, it's a little bit of elevation, don't worry about it. My God, that's a potential down the road death sentence. So please work up abnormal amnesia. So what are your, what, what, what would you say, what's, what's gonna raise your eyebrows? What's the, lo what's well, the lowest? Every lab might have a different reference range. So you certainly want it to be under whatever the upper limits are normal at a reference range. Experts in this think your ALT should be under 20. And under if it 20. starts to increase above 20, there's something irritating your liver. Now, of yeah. course, I mentioned insulin resistant. I think in today's world, you have to immediately rule out the viral causes of chronic liver disease also. So, hey, it's a one-time April B, April, or April uh, hepatitis B and C tests, et cetera, hepatitis yeah. A perhaps. Once you've ruled them out, unless you've got some obscure liver disease, you're looking at fatty liver, which is gonna come down to you're drinking too much or you're insulin resistant and you're not on the proper diet. And we can address that easily. And you said to me earlier, I just want to quote you because I thought this was, you know, just, I think it's important. You said any, everyone with insulin resistance has some degree of fatty liver, period. It's, it's a very early manifestation of it. Tragically, it goes unrecognized until they're in near end stage liver disease because yeah. too many clinicians poo poo. Uh, and, you know, patients say, hey, I see this ALT is up. What's that? I don't worry about it. It's only up a little bit. There's no let such me, thing as a little bit. So let me just say that to, to folks listening, I, I podcasted last year with Bob Browntree, and uh, that's our whole conversation was on Nash, and he outlined um, just, just a great uh, treatment uh, protocol. He just went through all of the supplements and so forth. So I would just encourage you to check out uh, Bob's podcast or check out his transcript if you want those details, because we've got Dr. Day Spring, we've got a lot of, of other topics here to cover. We sure do. So keep going on that primary investigation. Okay, so we've done that. Uh, Tara, you know, and you know, some people say if you're going to see a lipid abnormality, you need a pretty thorough thyroid workup. Personally, yes. I think every adult, at least on your initial meeting, needs some evaluation of their thyroid function because we need to be euthyroid to prevent a lot of cardiometabolic disease. And if you don't recognize that and don't take care of that, you're going to have a tough time controlling certain lipid and lipoprotein abnormalities. So I think if nothing else, a TSH to reflex the free T4, how whatever thyroid workup a clinician might desire, I, I think that's pretty crucial right up front also. Absolutely. So that's the basic stuff. Now, I'm going to get into the lipid profile and some lipoprotein markers. But you, you, since you started off this conversation with lipoprotein little a, LP with a small case A next to it, that yep. is the most common inherited genetic lipid lipoprotein abnormality that is significantly associated with cardiovascular risk. Now, you don't get that because you're eating wrong. You get that because you picked the wrong mother and father, but I don't think you had much choice there. So that's passed on to you. And if that concentration happens to be high, you automatically jump to a higher cardiovascular risk complication, which has treatment uh, considerations involved in it. So to me, and at least Last year, the European guidelines uh, jumped on this. We believe everybody needs a one-time LP little a test somewhere in your life. Look, you don't need it when you're three years old, but as you hit 20, early adulthood, that's a crucial uh, lipid parameter. It's a one-time test because it's genetic. You either have yeah. too much of it or you don't. It's not going to change 30 years down the road. So we need to evaluate that. By the way, not only is it the most common monogenic cause of atherosclerosis, it's also a, a mega cause of aortic valvular stenosis. And that's certainly something you want to know earlier rather than later too. So it's a very crucial test. You've apparently done the podcast on it already. It's very complex world once you get into it. And I'd love to chat with I you. I actually... Now. Well, you know what? I actually, we blogged on it and we'll link, I'll link to that blog on our show notes. So people who want to grab it, they can. I, so I, I we're going to talk about that LPA workup because you've thrown out 
incredibly important points. And I want to ask you, you know, stuff like, well, you know, there's a continuum. Some people might have modest elevations and some people have severe elevations. So I want to talk to you. I want to talk about all of it. So we're going to circle back to LPA, but I want to finish this primary evaluation first. Okay, good. So everybody's going to get what's called the standard lipid panel or lipid profile. And basically that cons consists of a total cholesterol measurement. By the way, that refers to all of the cholesterol molecules that are in all of your circulating lipoproteins, all of them, regardless of class of lipoprotein. And look, that's used in some risk equation, so it's an important marker. If it's off the chart, right away, you got to be thinking of some familial cause of hypercholesterolemia. It's a poor man's surrogate of something we're going to talk about, apolipoprotein B. But by itself, other than a population screening tool, it's, it's not that it's useful. Not useful. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to break it down into the component lipoproteins, how much cholesterol or triglycerides are they carrying. So, you know, you see LDL cholesterol. What that refers to is that's the cholesterol content of every LDL that's circulating within a deciliter of your blood. And to, in most labs, it's a calculated value based on other parameters. Uh, there are labs that will do a direct measurement of your LDL cholesterol, and I would suggest that's probably a better way to get that value. Uh, most labs use something called the Friedewald formula developed in the 1970s, which has probably outlived its usefulness. The John Hopkins people recently came up with a better formula. But why calculate it when you can measure directly LDL cholesterol? And the only value LDL cholesterol provides to you, it's another poor man's surrogate, better than total cholesterol, but it's just a preliminary indication to you that this person may have too many atherogenic lipoproteins circulating in their blood. And we're going to talk about it in a minute, but that's your ApoB-containing particles. So LDLC is a poor man's guesstimate of ApoB concentration. So of course, you're going to see HDL cholesterol on the panel. That would be the cholesterol molecules carried in all of your HDL particles per deciliter of plasma. And you know, certainly tons of epidemiologic trials have shown People with low HDL cholesterol in general have higher cardiovascular risk than those who don't have uh, low levels of HDL cholesterol. And that's about all you can do is use that as a maybe. So if you showed up in my office and you have a low HDL cholesterol, I got to start worrying that you probably have cardiometabolic risk, but I'm going to need other tests to prove it. There are plenty of people with low HDL cholesterol who never get cardiovascular disease, and there are plenty of people with high HDL cholesterol who do not. And HDL cholesterol metrics have taken a major hit in the lipid world over the last 10 years because of Mendelian randomization trials and numerous clinical trials where modulating HDL cholesterol had no cardiovascular benefit. Right, so, right. It's fine as a risk assessment tool. That's the last time you look at it. Whatever therapy you throw at a patient, I personally could care less what it's doing through HDL cholesterol. You're going to look at, am I getting rid of atherogenic lipoproteins or not? And if you want a generalization, low HDL cholesterol is just, again, a surrogate that you probably have too many of these potentially atherogenic ApoB-containing lipoproteins in your plasma. All right, Which we're going to... Yep, go ahead. Finish Everybody that. you see with low HDL cholesterol is likely early insulin resistant, prediabetes, diabetes, and their major lipoprotein abnormality is too many ApoB particles. Got it. So the low HDL cholesterol is a clue to you of that. Okay. So that's the other cholesterol measurement. Now, of course, serum triglycerides. Well, listen, wait, before you, before you jump onto triglycerides, let me just ask you about HDL. There's a lot of buzz in our world around quote, too high HDL. Is that something that you're going to think about? I mean, I'll just use myself as, a, as an example. Like it, mine, well, and my mom's, interestingly, just, just us. I've seen my whole family. The other side of the family actually has higher, high LPA, which was the intro on that blog I was actually writing about my dad. Um, but I don't, I have this high, I have an HDL that, that, that can run in the 120s. Am I worried about that? <sighs> The, probably not, but you might have to be. And here's the problem. HDL particles are very small. They don't carry that much cholesterol. As you know, a middle of the road reference range would be for a woman 50 to 60, for a man 40 to 50. As you go higher and higher, that means you, ha you have to have big HDLs, otherwise they couldn't carry that much cholesterol. 
But everything comes down to HDLs now with, are they what we call functional HDLs? They have the capacity, the ability yep. to do good things to your cardiovascular things, or might you have dysfunctional HDLs, which cannot do cardioprotective properties to your blood vessels. And so until we get a blood measure of HDL functionality, of which there are zero available to us in the real world nowadays, we have plenty of studies that show as HDL cholesterol starts to go above 70, 80, certainly in your range above 100, it's possible those are dysfunctional HDLs. They don't carry the type of proteins they should be carrying that have cardioprotective abilities. They might not carry the other surface lipids that come into play. So I don't know. Uh, there are enzymes that are involved with HDL metabolism, one called cholesterol transfer protein, where if you have some sort of change of function of that, your HDLs tend to be big. Some of those people are not at cardiovascular risk, some are. So it's a conundrum. So yeah. if you came to me and say, Tom, what do I, should I worry? Do I have dysfunctional HDLs? And I have to say, Kara, I got to look at every other biomarker I'm going to do on you. And because you have that, I'm probably going to do some extra ones. And then I can, based on that, say, you're at cardiovascular risk. What are the not. extra ones? Give me the quick well, rundown. Well, would be, we're going to dwell back into the, our markers of what I call potentially atherogenic, the ApoB-containing lipoproteins. Okay. You're going to look at inflammatory markers. Got uh, it insulin uh, resistance type of okay. markers, all of which affect HDL catabolism, metabolism, lipidation, delipidation. It's a very complex topic. Is the, is the map, is actually ensuring I've got some large alpha ones, is that a good piece of information for, no, for me? because okay. it's the, uh, first, it's the big HDLs that tend to be dysfunctional. So, okay. but the majority of big HDLs are not dysfunctional. But, okay. Without getting too complicated, what is an HDL supposed to do once it fills up with cholesterol? You've been taught that it's supposed to bring it back to the liver in a process called reverse cholesterol transport. Well, if you really had very good reverse cholesterol transport, that would tell me if you've got all big HDLs, they're somehow not being delipidated. There's something broken yeah. in your HDL catabolism because those HDLs should be carrying that cholesterol to wherever an HDL carries it. And it's way more than the liver. Those HDLs can bring cholesterol to your steroidogenic tissues. It can bring it to your gut, or it can just transfer it to an LDL, which then is supposed to bring it back to the liver. So it's very tough to just say you've got big HDLs too. I would never pat you on the back and say, don't worry about it. You're cardioprotective. That would be a dumb statement got to it. make without furthering that. And too many, and it drives me nuts because I think I told you for much of my practicing career, my, my clinic in uh, northern New Jersey was called the uh, North Jersey Institute of Menopausal Lipidology. So it was very much into women's health. And nothing more annoyed me than clinicians who tell women they're protected because they have high HDL cholesterol. They might be, but they might not be. And that is a dumb statement that no clinician should ever make henceforth. Awesome. Well, they you know what? More education. <laughs> You have um you have made your point. I really I really appreciate it. We we you know for this podcast my team will pull out really good quotes. Uh Tom, you're giving us a ton of them. We'll we'll blast that. We'll blast that out without there. We'll support your message. Um okay, so then for me again, this high HDL, but for anybody, you're circling back to ApoB and triglycerides. So so let's talk about the, you know, the 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 additional biomarker journey you're going to go on. Well, I was about to stumble into triglycerides, which okay. everybody knows. Triglycerides is a glycerol molecule carrying three fatty acids. They could all be the same fatty acids. They could all be different. You could have two of one, one of another. So it's pretty complicated. But it's a measure of fatty acids, uh, which don't circulate for the most part in your bloodstream. Uh, attached, they become glycerol lipids. They esterify to either a phospholipid or they esterify to it. Uh, a glycerol molecule. So you have phospholipids and triglycerides carrying your fatty acids. Phospholipids are on the surface of all your lipoproteins. Triglycerides wind up in the core of your lipoproteins. When you get a serum triglyceride level, you are measuring the mass of triglyceride molecules that exist in every lipoprotein in your body. It's LDL triglycerides plus HDL triglycerides plus intermediate density triglycerides plus LP little a triglycerides, VLDL triglycerides, and 
If it's postprandial, it could be chylomicron triglycerides. So that's what it is. And the way you use that, if at it, once it crosses a certain threshold, you have to automatically be thinking that I'm dealing with early insulin resistance, prediabetes, maybe it's even a diabetic, further blood tests would show that. But that's where this marker becomes important. Where's the real defining thing is what is a threshold? Virtually yep. all of our guidelines and laboratory reference ranges say, hey, if it's above 150, it's abnormal. I'm gonna tell you, I personally worry when I see a triglyceride being much above 80 or 90 milligrams per deciliter in a human. Now that doesn't mean everybody with a triglyceride of 100 is a pre-diabetic. I would have to do other tests to see whether that's true or not. But you, we have, we're gonna have to start worrying about triglycerides uh, at a much lower level. And believe it or not, what is the importance of triglycerides? Well, they do change the properties of any lipoprotein if there's too many triglyceride molecules within any lipoprotein. Uh, but they're basically another poor man's surrogate that this person has a high ApoB level. And okay. so boom, you're gonna, I keep mentioning ApoB here, that's gonna be the wonder marker that everybody has to do. But yep. before you measure ApoB, the guesstimates from a lipid profile is, hey, if there's elevations of total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, or uh, I didn't mention that, non-HDL cholesterol or triglycerides, I'm probably dealing with a high ApoB situation here. Okay. Uh, and then why say I probably am dealing with it? We're going to measure ApoB, and then you know I'm dealing with it or I'm not. And I just want to remind you guys. In the list. ApoB is part of Dr. Jay Spring's primary workup. Listen, what's an optimal triglyceride level before we jump into ApoB? Well, I just told you, you Less know, than a physiologic 80. triglyceride is well under 70, probably 40 or 50. So okay. that's what, if you have perfect metabolism, perfect nutrition, that's what it probably should be. Good. The current guidelines are going to tell you if it's above 150, some are sneaking down to 130 now, that... Uh, we're worried about you. This is an abnormal trend. 130 would be the 75th percentile. That means 75% of people would have a lower triglyceride than you. So you're crossing into territory. I think there's some new publications about to come out that are going to show you we have to start worrying at much lower triglyceride levels. Look, uh, people who know me know for most of my life I was sort of an obese guy, not paying much attention to stuff and had high ApoB levels, I never had a triglyceride above 100, 102. And all my life, walk until we knew this, oh, look at that great triglyceride level. If, you have a, if you're insulin resistant like I was, a triglyceride of 100, you better be serious looking at other markers, especially ApoB. Got so, it. Uh, hey, it, any- It varies, but uh, respect triglycerides, please. Awesome. Uh, yeah, 40 to 50, I got it. Yep, that's, that's the-, the the range that we've been using. So and let me well, just one any last little pearl on triglycerides because I yeah I told you low HDL cholesterol is a pretty good marker of early insulin resistance diabetes. Why is HDL cholesterol so low in diabetics? Because what do they all have? Escalations of triglycerides. And HDL particles should virtually carry very few, if any, triglyceride molecules. But if you have too many triglyceride molecules, they crash their way into HDL particles, knocking cholesterol molecules out. So huh. if you have an HDL carrying excess triglycerides, of course you're going to have a low HDL cholesterol. Huh. That's, they're called fat HDLs, bad news. Interesting. Okay, so then in that case, an HDL triglyceride ratio would actually be useful. Yeah, so they, you know, many people think they go hand in hand, but I would tell you it's the triglycerides that drive that ratio, and it's the triglycerides that drive the low cholesterol content of your HDLs. So if you want to use that ratio as a surrogate of insulin resistance, go ahead. I think if you just looked at lower triglyceride levels, you wouldn't even need that ratio. But yes, there's a, certainly a mega interplay because lipoproteins, every one of them, exchange cholesterol for triglycerides. So particles that have too many triglycerides send it over to particles that don't. And to make room for that acquisition of that triglycerides, they send their cholesterol back to the particles they're exchanging with. So okay. HDLs become very fat, very triglyceride rich. They're cholesterol poor. A triglyceride-rich HDL is exposed to certain enzymes, so they all create small HDLs. So one of the major factors behind the size of your HDL particle is basically triglycerides. Whether they're there or not. 
And now I want to take a moment and talk to you about Fullscript. Fullscript is a virtual dispensing platform that helps practitioners dispense professional grade supplements and improve patient adherence from anywhere. It has the industry's most comprehensive catalog of professional grade products, has features like refill reminders, auto recorder, and even sends medically reviewed wellness content to patients on your behalf. I've started using Fullscript in my practice, so I have firsthand knowledge of the impact it can have on your patients and your business. First of all, it's super simple to use and it's loaded with features. Um, it's got EHR integrations, it's got customizable dosing instructions, and has an evidence-based protocol library that I love. It makes integrative medicine feel integrated. It integrates with your way of working, with your approach to wellness, even as it evolves, and with your patients' day-to-day -day lives. So if you're looking to boost patient adherence, eliminate inventory management, and earn more revenue for your practice, you should really try Fullscript. If you're a practitioner looking to sign up, go to fullscript.com backslash new frontiers to start using Fullscript for free today. If you're a patient currently ordering supplements from your doctor, let them know about Fullscript and tell them I sent you. Okay, yep. so let's keep, go let's keep on going. The last thing to, uh, I should mention, because for people who for whatever reason aren't going to do the ApoB test, the absolute best surrogate, meaning guesstimate in the lipid profile that you have too many of these atherogenic particles is something called non-HDL cholesterol. You take your total cholesterol level, which is a direct measurement, you subtract from it HDL cholesterol, which is a direct measurement, and what you're left with is the cholesterol that is not in your HDL particles. Well, every other particle that's left behind once you get rid of the HDLs is an ApoB particle. So non-HDL cholesterol is the best correlate in the lipid profile that, my God, we're dealing with too many ApoB particles here. We have cardiovascular risk and we better address it. So it's a, it's a free calculation. More and more labs are reporting that now. If they're not, it's a calculation you should do yourself. Unless you're going to measure ApoB, then I'm not so sure you need it in every person. But it's pretty much standard reporting nowadays, non-HDL cholesterol, because it's in all the guidelines as a secondary goal of therapy after LDL cholesterol. I'll so, just pop that calculation on our show notes. Yes, total cholesterol minus HDL cholesterol. If your lab gotcha. isn't reporting it, please chart it yourself, put oh, it in okay. your flow sheet. Okay, okay, perfect. Um, any optimal non-HDL? Uh, non yeah, it's basically you get into the argument, what's optimal for an LDL cholesterol or another, the two better surrogates of ApoB. And to be honest with you, it depends. If you were, if I'm talking to a patient who's had a bypass and three stents, I want their LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol to be way lower than I do for somebody who's early in the game, young, has had no cardiovascular issues yet. So any goal of therapy depends on your overall cardiovascular risk, but physiologically, where a normal LDL cholesterol would be 30 to 40, uh, a normal non-HDL cholesterol to me should be under 70. Oh, okay, that's pretty. The guidelines pretty might nice. still tell you a hundred, but the, the the guidelines got some catching up to do. Okay, so wait for for non HDL. You're you're saying it should be around a non HDL cholesterol should be around seventy. Should be seventy or below. Okay, and, and uh, again, if you have a couple of bypasses, stents, terrible cardiovascular risk, the lower the better. On any surrogate of ApoB in people who have cardiovascular risk, the lower the better. And an LDL, you said. An optimal and LDL, LDL. And remember, you should say LDL cholesterol. Yes, LDL is a lipoprotein. So we're measuring the cholesterol. So, it, it, you know, most guidelines nowadays, certainly for anybody in a treatable at-risk categories, they're talking about 50 or below. You Are know, really? newborns come out with LDLCs of 20, for God's sake. So really? So that, that's about as physiologic. Remember, LDL's primary job is they're not delivering cholesterol to your tissues. You can't hurt any tissue by dropping LDL cholesterol. LDL's primary purpose is to bring cholesterol back to the liver or the small intestine. They're a major part of your reverse cholesterol transport system. Jeez. And most of the animal kingdom has LDL cholesterol in the 20 to 30 range. Interesting. Humans, for a variety of reasons, have higher levels, probably our lifestyle, a little bit of our genes. But you cannot hurt anybody who's at risk by lowering their LDL cholesterol. Well, let me LDL ask you this. not delivering cholesterol to your adrenal gland, your gonads, or any, every cell in your body is, has enough machinery to make all the cholesterol it needs. So they you think, 
All right. Well, this is a big statement, and especially for functional medicine doctors, anybody yep. treating dementia is going to be perking up and you know get their fight in gloves. <laughs> yes, they now, would. But uh, let's get rid of that issue right now. Okay. The okay. brain makes all its cholesterol. There's no lipoprotein that delivers cholesterol to the central nervous system. So whatever we're doing with plasma lipids has zero effect on your brain lipids. Cholesterol is synthesized de novo in your brain. And so you're either making, you know, now if your brain's not making enough cholesterol, that's a, an issue for dementia, but it has nothing to do with the amount of cholesterol in your LDL particles because they can't cross the blood-brain barrier and deliver cholesterol. Okay. All right. Well, that's just really interesting. I'd love to sort of move into a keto yeah, conversation. Yeah, there are we'll... markers you can do to assess brain cholesterol homeostasis, but that's beyond today's talk. Okay. People will be tuning into our next one for sure with with these. Okay, keep going. Have we made it to eight? Right, so yeah, yes. those are your standard lipid tests. So here's, yeah, you know, I mean, basically, I think the only reason you need that lipid profile is to see what a triglyceride level is, because what you really need, the people who get atherosclerosis have sterols in their artery wall. And the only way sterols get into the artery wall, by the way, without sterols, the most Frequent one, of course, is cholesterol, but there are others. The only way a sterol gets into your artery wall is if a lipoprotein delivers it to the artery wall. And the uh, lipoproteins that have the potential to pass through your endothelium and deposit that cholesterol within the macrophages causing foam cells plaque are your ApoB-containing lipoproteins. So if I knew you had plaque, maybe you've done a CIMT study, a coronary calcium story, or... Uh, you've had a myocardial infarction. I, I know, wow, obviously cholesterol got into your artery walls. And I know the way they got there is they were passengers inside of an ApoB-containing lipoprotein. So what is the primary driving force that an ApoB particle leaves plasma instead of returning to the liver and enters your artery wall? And uh, by far, the primary driving force is the quantitation, the number of LDL particles or other ApoB-containing lipoproteins that force them into the artery wall. So that's why. So every LDL particle, every VLDL particle is enwrapped with a single structural, what's called an ApoProtein, a surface protein called apolipoprotein B, ApoB for short. So there's one ApoB on every LDL, one ApoB on every VLDL. Because of its very long half-life compared to VLDLs, days versus hours, 95% of your ApoB molecules are on LDL particles. So if I measure ApoB and it's high, I know you have too many circulating LDL particles. And if you okay. know, odds are good that some of those are going to crash your endothelial barrier and wind up in the artery wall where they can promote atherogenesis. Okay. So, that's why it's such an important risk factor. And this is backed up by dozens and dozens of uh, epidemiologic trials, clinical therapeutic trials, genetic studies, that it's a causal risk factor, having too many atherogenic ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But remember, high ApoB, almost all of those particles are LDLs. Not that VLDL particles aren't bad. You don't want to have too many of them. Uh, they're called remnants, but LDLs are the primary driving force of atherosclerosis. And what do you want to see an ApoB at? So a physiologic ApoB would be under 60 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, wow. The average person walking around probably is in the 90s. Uh, yep. People, when you start going above 100, you're into the 80th, 90th percentile uh, reference ranges of ApoB. Wow. And those are people that need some sort of serious therapeutic approach, including lifestyle, and if needed, to get where you got to go based on the risk pharmacologic ApoB-lowering therapy. So uh, those are the reference ranges. Certainly, if you're a very high-risk person who's had coronary disease, had an event, uh, you wanted, European guidelines are calling for under 55 now for ApoB. So are you, what are you, how are you going to be lowering ApoB? Well, what is the primary cause why people have too many of these LDL and VLDL particles? Because their liver is not clearing them. The liver has been 
hopefully grace with the ability to upregulate something called LDL and VLDL receptors, which grab these ApoB particles and pull them into the liver, which can catabolize them and do lots of things with them. But if the liver clears them, obviously they cannot crash your coronary arteries. So you have to improve clearance of ApoB-containing lipoproteins. So there are many lifestyle measures that can help you uh, address this situation to improve expression of the LDL receptors, decrease production of triglycerides and things like that that contribute to having uh, unclearable LDL particles. So there's uh, many ways to pick the proper diet and two, three months later, see if that diet's working. Did your LDL or ApoB level go down? If it did, you've stumbled on to the right diet. And I shouldn't say stumbled on because hopefully you're prescribing dietary therapy based on the rest of your metabolic workup, which we haven't talked about. Are you insulin resistant or not? Am I dealing with a genetic cholesterol problem here? All of that might affect which diet you want to recommend to a patient. Overwhelmingly though, just so, so people are going to want to have some, clinicians are going to want to have some kind of an idea of where you're starting from. And I'm going to assume you're looking at insulin resistance as the yes. causal factor. So, I, you know, off the top of my head, I'm going to say in real world practice, where I spent most of my life, 37 years of it, 90% uh, of your ApoB elevations, you're going to find underlying insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, yeah. high triglycerides, okay. low HDL cholesterol. Okay. So those are the people where I think even just based on that, I, I mean, everybody's going to do a A1C. You're going to do a, perhaps an insulin level to get a better handle on that. But well, you argue, you argue that the insulin level is actually really pretty important. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get into that up top because I was dwelling on lipids, but everybody's going to get a glucose on their metabolic profile. I think an A1C is a pretty standard test. Realizing, you know, you don't, it's not the Bible. There are people with elevated A1C who are not diabetics or, or not, but most of them would have some degree of glycemic abnormalities that probably need to be addressed. There but the reverse is true too, Tom. I mean, you can see, I've certainly seen in my practice, particularly in women with PCOS, have a beautiful A1C in their fours. You know, I'm thinking of one woman in, in particular. Oh, yeah. it's, it, but it's got a very insulin-resistant disease, sure. Yeah. And uh, that's where an insulin level might help you. And there are other yeah. markers of insulin resistance beyond today's discussion that yeah. might be appropriate for that patient. But I think you could nail down pretty easy that a PCOS is insulin resistant based on even certain hormonal markers or a adiponectin and other right. things, uh, including an insulin level. But, yes. And again, off the top of my head, if you're dealing with PCOS, you better be thinking insulin resistance is at play here because it almost, it's a big it part always of is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you, you know, the low carb diet is probably the initial thing you're going to go to. And with low carbs, and your audience is more expert uh, than I am in this. Some you're going to transition to at least a partially ketogenic or maybe a fully ketogenic diet because you're getting rid of at least the simple, the not so good carbs for you out of the diet. And you're replacing that with some type of fat or protein, probably. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're going to individualize your recommendations for that. For a fully ketogenic diet, extremely low carbs, it could work very well in this person. Uh, but a couple of cautions there. One, not everybody is going to want to stay on that severe ketogenic diet for a long time. If you're going to do that, you know, you really have to be doing finger sticks, checking on your ketones to really see, am I really in a ketogenic state or not? Because it's, you know, it's a tough threshold to cross. But the big worry nowadays, and it's another whole lecture here, is upwards of 40% of people who go on fully ketogenic diets send their ApoB level to high levels or through the roof. And yeah. boy, that becomes a whole issue. Do I have to worry about that or do you not? Every other study in the history of the world says you have to worry about high ApoB. Whether ketogenic-induced ApoB is going to be an exception to that rule, somebody would have to do a major clinical trial. What's your opinion? What, what, what's your opinion? My opinion is if you have cardiovascular risk and I'm blowing your ApoB into the stratosphere with a ketogenic diet. I want to make sure I have every other cardiovascular risk factor under control. Two, that's where Got coronary it. calcium might help you. And yep. but number three is in the ketogenic diet, back off the saturated fat and start using more monounsaturated fat or uh, you know the polyunsaturated fat. 
there are more and more I'm starting to see by colleagues who know what they're doing on the internet. There are vegan ketogenic diets, and that might be the way to go in somebody who's too much saturated fat. How, how frequently can you evaluate ApoB to gauge dietary response? Believe it or not, since the half-life of an LDL particle is three to five days, uh, you can repeat it in a week to see awesome. what you're doing. Not that, you know, you get into trouble with third-party payers saying you can't right. repeat these blood tests too often, but <laughs> very quickly, these metrics change. You don't have to well, wait six months to see what you're doing. And you know what? You, if you've got it, these are not cheap tests, inexpensive. I mean, these are pretty inexpensive if you have to pay out of pocket. I would buy, yes, I would do like are. direct labs or something like that, you know, to get, and, and then follow it until you have it dialed in. Listen, I want you to give me 30 seconds. I'm just going to jump over to what I'll, everyone's thinking about right now. And, and that is what about APOE4? We talked about it for a second. So within this context, you're putting somebody on a keto um, and they're APOE4. So obviously you're thinking about the lipids. You're just going to do that. You're going to be trying, you're going to be toggling through them through the diet and then just do perhaps rapid-fire ApoB measurement, right, to make sure they're dialed in? Well, yeah, you're ultimately going to make all the majority of your decisions on ApoB, but then you got to get into why, what is contributing to this high ApoB, and you're going to get into a lot of factors there. Another topic for another day is uh, your cholesterol homeostasis. Is your body over-absorbing or over-synthesizing cholesterol? I right. will tell you we have pretty good data from over 600,000 people that People with an E4 allele tend to be hyperabsorbers of cholesterol. So you can address that. Uh, some of uh, something else that would drive it would be over synthesizers of cholesterol. And w one of the biggest stimulants that your cells start making too much cholesterol is you're putting too much saturated fat into your diet. So that might be something that has to be assessed. And all of the other stuff that, hey, APOE4 tells you whether you should eat fats or not comes from weak epidemiologic data where half of the trials show this, half of the trials don't. So I personally don't use it. The biggest thing I think you can do by APOE genotyping is pick up somebody with a one or two APOE4 alleles. Then you know you have the potential for cognitive issues down the road and you can interview them closely on their family history for that endpoint and you can take issues. I believe Cognitive impairment, if discovered early enough, is not an untreatable disease. I think there's plenty of lifestyle, even supplemental things that you can do to ward that off. Absolutely. So I think it's crucial to know an APOE4 on you. But for that reason, not that I'm going to use it to make dietary adjustments. And I know there are people yeah. who will disagree with me on that. But so you're basically they, saying they have high level evidence. Yeah. So the jury is out, folks, as to what diet is appropriate for ApoE4. You start somewhere and then you pay attention to the ApoB, et cetera, to make sure that ApoE4 that is said, Whatever nutritional thing, and you know, the world's all over the map. I've got the best diet. You've got the best diet. Do whatever <laughs> you want to do nutritionally. And then a month later, two months at the outside, repeat some of these cardiovascular biomarkers. And are you succeeding or are you not? That's yep. easy. Yep. Yep. Perfect. And, and you get change your therapy. Perfect. That's easy. And and you've given us some optimal ranges and we want them dialed in for these patients. All right. Listen, we've got, I, I let's talk a little bit about L, the LPA workup. So you've done this one-time evaluation, LPA is high, then what? Well, right away, we want to know this person is probably caught. You want a good family history. If you see ancestors have uh, left the world earlier, had cardiovascular events, it even becomes a more significant risk factor. But not everybody knows their family history that well. In the real conundrum, it's like everything else. Does everybody in the world who has high LDL cholesterol drop dead of a heart attack? No. Does everybody in the world who has high LP little a get cardiovascular events or aortic stenosis? No. Many do, but many do not. Well, the conundrum is, if here's I see a patient with high LP little a, I'm presuming they're a cardiovascular risk, but how do I know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a test that's coming, and look, you're going to assess all those other cardiovascular markers we've already talked about, and if they're out of whack in a patient with LP little a, I would treat them super aggressively, because they are modifiable, they are treatable, and by themselves, if you improve them, they do reduce cardiovascular risk, even in people with high LP little a. But and this gets into a topic that's probably best suited for another day. 
you know, those particles in the artery wall get oxidized, and that's what makes the macrophage ingestin causing bone cells or plaque. So we'd love to have tests of uh, oxidized lipoproteins. The only one available now is something called oxidized LDL, which is basically are looking at some oxidized aldehydes on ApoB that is on some of the circulating LDL particles and only those that are minimally oxidized, because there really are no fully oxidized particles circulating in plasma. It's not a great blood test. If you, I think it's useful in that at least it tells you this person has a pro-oxidative state, and you can address that, I think, with better nutrition than you can drugs, lifestyle, whole foods, et cetera, et cetera. But LP little a is an LDL particle to which is attached a exogenous protein that shouldn't be there, and it's called apolipoprotein little a, apo little a. Your liver makes it. It's the only organ that makes it. So if you've got the genes that your liver makes ApoA, it secretes it, and that little ApoA jumps onto the first LDL particle it sees. Then it's attached forever. And that Apo little a has potentially thrombogenic properties. It's a procoagulant. But its biggest detriment is probably a zillion years ago, whenever primates evolved this, its function was to pick up oxidized lipids in your bloodstream, which are very toxic molecules, and return them to the liver or some other tissue for catabolism. So if you have a pro-oxidative state, these oxidized, they're mostly phospholipids, but other oxidized lipid moieties bind very closely to that apo little a. So in general, if you have an LP little a particle that is also carrying oxidized phospholipids, that's a way, way, way more dangerous LP little a particle. There is a blood test called OXPL, oxidized phospholipids dash ApoB. They're looking for oxidized phospholipids on ApoB particles. Virtually all of those are LP little a particles. So right now, at least proven in several published studies, if we could do oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, that would be a tremendous test for me to say, oh my God, not only do you have too many LP little a particles, but they're carrying oxidized lipids. That's a really, really bad guy. We got to get rid of it. So okay. uh, that test hopefully will become available commercially this year. It's been around for a long time. It's a lot of research and publications on it, but it's just, not, I know Boston Heart is trying to bring it to the real world, and I hope they're successful in doing that because it's a test you really need. Without it, that, what yeah. I do with your, if you have a high LP little a, is I reduce your ApoB to physiologic levels or you're not doing ApoB, I reduce your LDL cholesterol, non-HDL cholesterol, triglycerides to physiologic levels. Uh, I look for other inflammatory conditions, other things that might generate a pro-oxidant state, insulin resistant being high on the list. Yes. Uh, so you're basically with high LP little a, you're trying to clean the body of every other thing that we know if we modulate them in the right direction, they reduce heart disease. And by the way, that's why LP little a is not a goal of therapy at this time, because we have nothing that has been proven to lower LP little a and reduce cardiovascular events. Yeah. Almost certainly because all of the therapies available nowadays just don't lower LP little a enough. The preliminary data, and we have a drug coming that's going to stop your liver from making apo little a, and we believe that's going to be the cure of these people, but that's years away. Uh, until we have that, the studies, at least with that drug show, unless you reduce LP little a by 50 to 60%, you're doing nothing beneficial to that patient. They, they still have enough LP little a particles left over to cause serious risk. Got it. So that's the problem. We have nothing. So don't be dwelling, staying up all night, wondering how I can lower LP little a. Lower ApoB. Get rid of the particles that are primarily driving your atherosclerosis, the VLDLs and LDLs. And that comes with LDL receptor-mediated therapy, lifestyle or drugs, triglyceride-lowering therapies, lifestyle or drugs, diabetes therapy that improves the lipids, and, you know, several diabetic therapies, at least in the pharmacologic world, have now great cardiovascular event reduction data. So there's many tools if you have to use them, but what, yeah. okay. that's why early discovery is so crucial. That's where the lifestyle is probably going to spare you a lifetime of taking drugs. Let me ask you this. So this is 
this is this this is very helpful it, because it's true. Anybody practicing medicine these days, we're all looking at LPA and the LP little a, and the fact is, yeah, lowering it to um, levels you know associated with true risk reduction is just that's yeah, impossible. It's theory right now. That's yeah, all yeah. it is. Theory. Yeah. There's no proof of that. Well, we let all me ask you. It's true, but uh, I would rather concentrate primarily on the things to get rid of the absolutely true risk factors. Then if you want to do something to lower LP little a, be my guest. A popular therapy is niacin. I never use niacin. It's just too toxic a molecule, but that's again, another discussion. Yeah, that, yeah, right, right, right. Well, well, and it's, I mean, I do use niacin um, and I just monitor liver function tests, but it's still, it's still, yeah, but it's still it's pretty challenging. The biggest adversary is insulin resistance, ulcerogenic, arrhythmogenic, uh, there's just too much bad stuff seen in all the big <laughs> niacin trials. So, uh, look, that's a separate conversation. Watch for it. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. We'll circle back on niacin. Um, all right. Well, listen. Let me just ask you a couple, couple more questions on LP little hay here and wrapping up. The fact that you know it's associated with hypercoagulability. I mean, am I looking at fibrinogen in my LPA patients, or yeah. am I using high dose fish oil? I mean, what are you thinking about with that? Well. Look, you can make the case for high-dose fish oil in virtually everybody with cardiovascular sure. risk. Personally, I measure uh, your red blood cell phospholipid omega-3s, which is a steady state mm -hmm. of omega-3s. And if it's low, you need omega-3s. If it's not low, you probably don't. But in general, that's a very healthy cardiovascular supplement that I would recommend for most people to consider for their regimen. But it's a biomarker you can measure in the bloodstream. So... Uh, there's just nothing that I can tell you nutritionally that, uh, look, uh, you're going to prescribe nutrition based on all the other cardiometabolic abnormalities you have found in your thorough workup or so. And then look, if LP little a doesn't change, it goes up, and it goes down, whoopsie do, and you may be happy. We're all happy to see something seemingly moving in the right direction. But all I'm asking you for is show me trials where something lowered LP little a and there are less yeah. heart attacks. The only one even approaching that nowadays are the PCSK9 inhibitors, and that's because they blow away LDL so much. And because right. they're blowing away LDL, they're reducing some LP little a particles. Niacin has three trials where they looked at, they give niacin to people with high LP little a, and even though niacin reduced it, there was no cardiovascular benefit. So right, why right, are you right. making happy when you prescribe niacin yourself because you're seeing a better LP little a? There wouldn't be evidence supporting you. And I understand so, lots of people use it for that reason, and that's fine. Um, right, I hear you. I hear, well, Mark Houston, for one, would be, I think, probably. Yeah, he would be, but I would ask Mark, please forward me a study <laughs> where nice and improving LP little a matters, and Mark would have zero to send me. Uh, you do All right. know prescription niacin has been removed from the market in Europe. Uh, and listen, listen, let me not let's let's by any let's, guideline here in the United States any longer. Let's um I want to I want to talk about the 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 coronary calcium score. So yeah. if you see LPA LP little a are you jumping on a calcium score immediately? Uh, uh, the most recent guidelines would tell you this. Uh if you see somebody who has either an LDL cholesterol in an ApoB range that you don't like, you think it's pretending cardiovascular risk. Of course, you're going to recommend the lifestyle changes you want to. But sooner or later, depending on what the thresh, the level of those metrics are, you're going to say, we have to get into the world of pharmacotherapy if we're ever going to get your ApoB to physiologic levels. So you're going to most likely go into statin or statinazetamide therapy as your first choices there, unless you're very rich and you can go to a PCSK9 inhibitor. So... And as you know, not everybody wants to go on pharmacotherapy for lipid management. So yeah. how do you make that decision? So the guidelines say if you have somebody in the intermediate risk category with borderline LDL metrics, there's two tests you can do that ascertain, yes, you have to go down the pharmacotherapy pathway. And the first is do an LP little a level. And if that's high, you should go on a statin. By the way, although statins don't lower LP little a, they reduce LDL particles so much that there are cardiovascular benefits regardless of what the statin does to LP little a. What about, so what about the fact that it's, you're going to still see a whole lot of particles, LDL particles? Well, remember, of your total LDL particles, LP little a particles are maybe 10% of them. 90% of your LDL particle count, your ApoB, is 
what I don't want to call them normal, but they're LDL particles not carrying apolidyl A. So in the statins, zetamibe and other therapies are great at clearing them. So they pull them out of your system, which drastically reduces your cardiovascular risk. They, in general, are not going to pull your LP little A particles. So they're still there, but you've certainly improved the cardiovascular risk of that patient by getting rid of the primary particles that are causing atherogenesis, the uh, uh, LDL and VLDL particles. So remember, although LP little a, it, it's a minority LDL particle. Nobody has a predominance of LP little a particles compared to LDL particles, other than those who might be taking statins and PCSK9 inhibitors. And so there's still a little residual risk there. But until that APOA synthesis inhibitor drug comes, we're in, we got nothing that you can address any LP little a issues with to at least, and that's the hope. But listen, that's three, four years away. They're only doing this study in super high nightmare patients. It will tell us nothing about primary prevention with LP little a. That is decades away before we have any proof on that, as sad right. as that sounds. Right, so, right. But you got to do what you got to do. But this is why. In the old I days, think we, we could measure LP little a particle counts and LDL particle counts separately. That test is not available anymore. So that could really tell you why wow, I've done a great job on lowering LDL particles. And as expected, I haven't removed that many LP little a particles. Uh, so, but again, once you've gotten rid of the LDL particles and you've corrected insulin resistance, hypertension, other metabolic, then I, you're stuck with your LP little a. Right, right. But you know what, then I think you've really considerably reduced um, risk yes. when you dial so, all of those pieces in. And the in. important thing to know, so I don't want to downplay LP little a, but even if you make all those other parameters normal, but LP little a is still an issue, there, there is greater residual risk than in people who have no LP little a. So it's never not a bad particle. But I think in the future, we're going to know the LP little A's you really have to worry about are those that are carrying oxidized phospholipids on the way to Right, 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 right. And, right. and again, I don't know what you do for that either, other than whole foods and get reducing a pro-oxidant state, however, yes. whatever supplements you might want to use for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know what was interesting? I'm going to just ask you one last question, then we're, we're, already, um, we're already really way, at time. So should, uh, coronary calcium would follow. You said, what are you doing? Everybody with a borderline LDL metric should have an LP little a. And the second test they recommend is a coronary calcium. Because if that's positive, you pretty much need serious pharmacotherapy on top of your lifestyle therapy to reduce your cardiovascular risk. If you have a coronary calcium is zero, uh, you probably have five to 10 years before it's going to come up. People like Peter Atiyah would say, who cares? Atherosclerosis takes decades to develop. Uh, so why would you ever not want to treat a high APOB? But you have to individualize that. You know, you have if with zero coronary calcium, you might have some time to play. The other thing, recognize coronary calcium is not a useful metric in young people because it does take right. decades to get a positive coronary calcium. So doing it in 20-year-olds is likely a waste of time. And are you going to be say? So, and, and what about actually turning it around? In what way? I mean, dropping out. I mean, once you've, you've got no, it, it's, so it's there. Here's the problem. We've got any number of trials that show no statins increase coronary calcification, but they reduce cardiovascular events. And it would be, theory would be, well, the statins are, and the drug therapy is stabilizing your plaque. It's not vulnerable plaque anymore, but stabilized plaque accumulates calcium. So as good as it is as a screening tool, I don't believe it's a tool that should be used for follow-up judging of your therapeutic efficacy of nutrition or drugs at this time. All you're going to do is make a patient nervous. Yeah. Because that doesn't mean what you might think it means because there are therapies that we increase coronary calcium that are cardioprotective. Okay, and that would just, as far as you're concerned, that can, that's... It's like LP little a. It's, a. it's a primary risk assessment tool, but that's, you don't have to repeat it, either one of those. And one day we will repeat LP little a when we have a drug that says if you lower LP little a using this drug, there is cardiovascular risk reduction, and that's a few years away. Okay. Well, this, this has been a tour de force. I know everybody's like fervently taking notes. We've got the, we've got the transcript on the show notes, folks. Um, I would love to talk to you on another 
recall what, you know, some specific thoughts around women's lipids. So we're, we won't do that today, but I want to encourage listeners to ping me with questions and your thoughts. I know for our functional medicine community, Dr. Dayspring has said some provocative things that might get a little bit of the fire going and go ahead, post those comments. Um, Dr. Dayspring can, can weigh in on it. And if you have additional comments and think about the Women's Lipid podcast and questions you might have there as well. I just look forward to keeping this dialogue going. It was extremely, extremely useful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. One more comment. I can be followed at Dr. Lipid on Twitter. I have over 12,000 followers. Every day I'm posting stuff that you'd probably find interesting, whether you agree with it or not, but we all have a lot more to learn on these topics. Absolutely. I mean, and just your exquisite understanding of the biomarkers and how we want to look at them and how we want to think about them is just, it's, 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 it's so, so invaluable to us. Um, We will, Dr. Dayspring, print your Twitter, your, you know, any, any information for folks to be able to follow you and access you. We'll put all of that on our show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to continuing our conversation. That was great, Kara. Thank you. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.